0: probably a couple years ago that I signed up for LifeLock. If you're not familiar with LifeLock, it's an app that monitors your financial accounts and your personal identity, makes sure that nothing funny is going on. So every once in a while on my phone, I get an alert that pops up that says, hey, did you make this financial transaction? Did you send this check to this person? But then there's the the one that just is so much fun to get at about 2 a.m. that says, your information has been found on the dark web. And so then you spend the rest of the night doing what they suggest is the the only answer to that, which is to change every password you've ever created for every account you've ever had. But LifeLock is a, a security blanket in some ways because you know that somebody's watching out for you against these threats that you don't always know are coming. But there's a threat that LifeLock can't predict. There's a threat that even LifeLock can't know about that isn't going to warn you about, you're not going to get a pop-up on your phone from them, from them about this particular threat. See, there's a, an enemy that you have out there that is far greater than any enemy that may be after your personal information. There's a threat that's out there that's far greater than you having your social security number exposed or compromised or your identity stolen. There's an enemy that you have out there that hates you with a hatred that's greater than any, any criminal, any crook, any thief, anyone else on the face of the planet there's an enemy who has your name at the top of their hit list see there's a threat that's out there that's not primarily a physical threat or a financial threat but it's a spiritual threat and it's not some kid in his mom's basement trying to find out what your passwords are no this enemy that you have that's out there is the one that the bible calls the prince of the power of the air the one that the bible calls the god of this world the one that the Bible calls Satan, your adversary. And this enemy that you have is out to see you derailed, distracted, and if possible, even destroyed. And if you and I are not standing the way that the Lord is calling us to stand, prepared and equipped the way that the Lord wants us to be prepared and equipped, then we're never going to survive the battle that faces us every single day. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 helps us to understand how can we stand. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 verses 10 through 18 helps us to understand what it looks like for us to engage in spiritual warfare in a way that the Lord says will result in us having stood against the forces and stood the test and stood in the face of the opposition and enduring all the way through the end. So if you will, grab your Bibles and open them to Ephesians chapter 6 and we're going to read verses 10 through 18. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Be strong, be strengthened by God in the strength of his might. See, Paul's coming off of two and a half chapters of practical admonition of what it looks like to live out the gospel. In Ephesians 1 through 3, he's talked about the the content of the gospel, the content of the good news. And we get to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, those verses that we love so much. For by grace you have been saved through faith, right? That's the the truths of the gospel that we stand in. And then in chapter 4 and chapter 5 and in the first part of chapter 6, Paul's been talking about what difference those truths should make in our lives. That we should be men and women of godliness and holiness, putting off sin and putting on Christ-likeness. Well, Paul knows, as so many of you know as well, that if that's the type of life that we're going to live if we're going to live a life of obedience to the Lord, if we're going to live a life of faithfulness to God in Jesus Christ, then we are going to face opposition. That we are going to be opposed by this enemy, this adversary, this devil in all of his forces, who wishes to see us derailed and and distracted and destroyed and and kept from growing in Christ's likeness. And so knowing that we're going to face this opposition, he writes in Ephesians 6.10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. It's a passive imperative there. It means that you and I need to be strengthened, not from a strength that we possess, but from a strength that is possessed by another and given to us by another. And that's the strength that you and I have in Jesus Christ. Paul would write in 2 Timothy 3, or excuse me, 2 Timothy 2, 1. He says, You, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Paul prayed for this strength to be ours already in the, the epistle to the Ephesians. In Ephesians 1, 19-20, he prayed that we might know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And then in Ephesians 3, 16-17, Paul wrote that, we might, according to the riches of his glory, that he might grant us to be strengthened with power through his spirit in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith and that us being rooted and grounded in love. And he goes on from there. But the point is here that this strength that you and I need is not a strength that we can produce on our own. It's not a strength that comes from us. It's a strength that comes from our relationship to Jesus. It's the strength that is ours as we are made new creations in Christ, It's a strength that allows us to do what Paul talked about in Romans chapter 6, and that is daily to get up and say, you know what, I'm not going to present my body, myself, as an instrument to unrighteousness, to sin. No, but now in Christ, through the power that God has provided for me and and, and to me, I'm going to now present my body as an instrument of righteousness to him. It's the power of the gospel at work in our lives, and and Christians, we need that if we're going to stand against the enemy that you and I face on a regular basis. And so Paul says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength, not of your might, but of his might. Why? Well, because of the nature of the enemy that we face. Verse 11, put on the whole armor of God in order that, for the purpose that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. To stand, to be immovable, to hold your ground against the schemes and the opposition of the enemy. See, we need the power of God if, if we're going to stand, because the one that we face is the devil and his schemes. Schemes is the word methodos in Greek there, which is where we get our English word method. So the methods of the, the devil, what well, we know most often in the Bible, Jesus and others describe the devil as the, the liar, the father of lies and deceit, right? John eight forty four. 44, Jesus says he, speaking of the devil, he was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Well, what are these schemes that the devil is all about in this world? Well, from an umbrella category, it's to oppose the plan and work of God. That is what the devil and all of his demons are after. They want to oppose the plan and work of God anywhere and everywhere they possibly can on this earth. So what does that look like? Well, first, it looks like him through his demonic forces, because he's the prince of demons, as the Bible calls him, expanding his reach and influence in far, as far and as wide as he possibly can. It looks like him promoting worldliness. First John 2:16, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh and the, the pride of life, right? Those are the things that the devil majors in, and that his demons major in as they seek to promote those things in the, the world's systems all around us. They promote worldliness. The other schemes of the devil involve influencing governments. You think back to the book of Daniel, and you've got Daniel chapter 10 and the concept of the prince of Persia being influenced and guided by the demonic forces at work there. What else does the devil and his demons do? Well, the devil, it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, disguises himself as an angel of light in order to deceive, in order to lead astray. They will afflict physically, they will afflict mentally. They will destroy life, according to Revelation 9. They will promote rebellion against God. In fact, that's what they've been doing from the beginning. Genesis chapter 3, the serpent comes to Eve in the Garden of Eden and says, Did God really say? They will slander God. They will slander you. They will promote idol worship. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, Moses says that those that worship idols are really worshiping demons. They will obscure God's grace. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul there talks about the fact that the the lost have been blinded by the God of this world, that their eyes are unable to see the the glories of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ. Why? Because the God of this world has obscured the gospel, obscured the grace of God, blinded their eyes from seeing. They will also promote false teachings and false religions. 1 Timothy chapter 4 speaks of that. And then ultimately they will... Deny Christ, 1 John chapter 4. That's a 30,000 foot view of some of the the demonic activity, but what about for us? What about for for believers? What's the type of spiritual warfare and demonic opposition that you and I are going to face on a regular basis? Well, one thing they're certainly going to do is they're going to take God's word and they're going to twist, they're going to distort, they're going to pervert God's word. And again, that's from the very beginning. The serpent comes to Eve. Did God really say, Right? He's going after God's word, compromising, undermining, twisting, perverting God's word. And Eve responds, and she says, yes, he said that. He said, don't eat from it. Don't even touch it, because if, if we even touch it, we're going to die. Here comes the enemy again to twist, pervert, distort. You're not going to die. You're not going to die. God's just an egomaniac. He's a megalomaniac, because he knows in the day that you eat that, that fruit that you like so much, Eve, that really pretty fruit over there, and the day that you eat of it, Eve, your eyes are going to be open. You're going to know good from evil. You're going to be like God, and God just doesn't want anybody to be like him. And so, Eve, keeping the word of God, that's really not what's best for you. They distort the word. Christian, Satan and his demons are going to do the same thing for you and I on a daily basis. Did God really say that you have to forgive that person after what they did? God doesn't really expect you to forgive them. Yeah, I know the Bible says that we're supposed to forgive as we've been forgiven in Christ. I, I, I know all that. Yeah, I know that David said against you and you only have I sinned, God. And I, I, get, I get all that, but, but man, God doesn't really, he didn't really mean that because he, doesn't, he didn't know what, what you're up against with your husband, with your wife. He doesn't really expect you to have to forgive them. Does God really want you to share the gospel with that person? God doesn't want you to share the gospel with that person. There's no way. They, they've already made their decision. They've made up their mind. See, the enemy's going to come in and take God's word, which is so clear for us when we read it, and he's going to per, pervert it and twist it and distort it as much as he possibly can. The enemy's also going to come in and, and it's, discourage you. The enemy's going to come in, and you're going to be flooded with thoughts of, I mean, I don't, I don't really know if I should go to, to church this week because it's uh, the week that I've had. I, I've, I've sinned so much this week. i I feel too guilty to go to church. I don't think I can pray because of what I just did. I I can't repent and seek forgiveness from the Lord because I need to clean myself up first before God's going to take me back. The enemy's going to derail you from God's mission, both individually and us as a church, right? He's going to want you to major on the minors instead of majoring on the major, and the major is for us to make disciples of Jesus Christ. He's gonna do everything that he possibly can to get you off mission. For you to sit there with the thoughts of, well, that's something that other people do, not me. That's why there's people with the gift of evangelism, so therefore I don't have to go evangelize anybody. He's gonna tempt you to sin. He's gonna cause affliction, physical, mental. He's gonna create division in the church. He's going to slow the spread of the gospel. He's going to incite persecution. See, all of these things are are what we might broadly call spiritual warfare. And again, Paul knew that this was going to come. Hey, if you're going to live the way that I'm calling you to live, Paul's saying, you're going to need a power that's not yours inherently because you are up against a foe that is going to hate what I'm calling you to do. Satan and his demons are not going to delight in the fact that you want to be like Jesus. And they're going to do everything they can to slow that down, to stop you, to hinder you. But Jesus said that was going to happen, didn't he? John chapter 15, verse 19. He said, hey, if if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world, what? Hates Hates you. The world hates you. In fact, Jesus would go on to say, don't be surprised when the world hates you. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. Christian, we need to expect this opposition from the enemy. If we're following Jesus, we're going to follow him into spiritual warfare. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3:12, indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be what? Persecuted. You will be persecuted. So what does this spiritual opposition look like? Well, it might be temptation to sin. It might be that you've got a, a marriage that's on the rocks. It might be that you've got authorities knocking on your door wanting to imprison you for naming Jesus Christ as your Lord and the Savior. Either way, the the spiritual opposition is going to come from the enemy, and we need to be ready. And that involves knowing and remembering who our enemy is. See, Christian, your enemy is not COVID. Your enemy is not a politician. It's not a governor. Your enemy is not an ex. It's not an employer or coworker. It's not a disgruntled neighbor. It's not an estranged family member. Your enemy is not a terrorist with a rocket or a bomb or a plane to fly into a building. Your enemy is far more dangerous, far more powerful, far more relentless than any of those. And if we hope to stand, we have to be aware of who he is. Because Peter says this is the enemy that's prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Christian, this morning you have an enemy seeking to devour you. And if you want to stand the way that Paul's calling us to stand, we need to remember who that enemy really is. First point this morning is this. Be constantly aware of your enemy. Be constantly aware of your enemy. Paul says in verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Can we all just stop there and read that again? We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. The person, when you hear the word enemy, that person that comes into mind is not the chief enemy that you face. That is somebody who is being used by the enemy. That is somebody who is blinded by the enemy. That is somebody who needs the gospel. The enemy is the the spiritual forces behind what's going on there. That's who we need to rage against. We sang it a moment ago. We love the captive soul, but what do we do? We rage against who? We rage against the captor. Our battle is not a political battle. Our battle is not a military battle. Our battle is a spiritual battle. We do not wrestle, we do not have close hand-to-hand combat against flesh and blood, but who do we wrestle against? Paul says against the the rulers and the authorities. These are the the powerful leaders of the demonic forces, the captains of the the legions of the the spiritual enemies out there, the rulers and authorities against the, the cosmic powers, those that are at work in the false religions, in the cults, Right? These are the, the, the powers that are over world governments, even. The cosmic powers in this present darkness. When John says in 1 John two fifteen through 17, he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. We know that he's not talking about people there, right? He's talking about the sphere in which we live and breathe and have our being. He's talking about this world that we live in, where Satan is the prince of the power of the world the power of the air. He's the, the God of this world. We, we live here on his turf, in his territory for now. And this is a world that is inherently opposed to God and that's the battlefield against the spiritual forces of evil. All the, the, that's the catch-all phrase for all of the other demonic forces that work here in the heavenly places. See, all the battle that we fight is primarily a spiritual battle. So when your coworker lashes out at you because of your convictions as a, as a Christian and speaks words that are hurtful and rude to you or crass, Christian, be reminded that your enemy is not the one who's standing there with these words coming out of his mouth, but it's the demonic forces, it's the spiritual forces that work behind those words. Is, listen, is he still gonna have to give an account for his actions? Yes, yes. But your battle's not him. Your battle's a bigger, more heinous, more powerful, more wicked, more evil enemy. When your husband or wife mocks you for your Christianity and doesn't want you to bring your kids to church or to send them to revival, Christian, remember that your battle is not your spouse. Your battle is the, the God of this world who's blinded her eyes or his eyes to the truth of the gospel. When your neighbor dismisses your attempts to evangelize and share the gospel with them, for the upteenth time, remember that your battle is not your neighbor, but the spiritual forces at work in the heavenly places. Christian, when our leaders pass another law, making it harder to be a Christian, or another mandate is handed down, remember that your battle is not flesh and blood, but it's the spiritual forces at work in this present darkness. Should we be salt and light and fighting for what's good in this world and speaking out against, what, against what's wrong? Yes, absolutely. But what did Paul encourage us to do one chapter earlier in the book of Ephesians? We are to speak the truth in what? In love. In love. Love for who? Love for the person we are speaking to or speaking about. And so, yes, let's rage against the captor. But, y'all, let's love the captive in the process. Because they're not our primary enemy. Our battle's not there. Our battle is against a much greater foe. And the reason why this is such a struggle is because we see the flesh and blood. We hear the words of the flesh and blood. We feel the sting of the mockery of the flesh and blood. And we feel the persecution of the flesh and blood. But y'all, they're not our battle. Our battle is not there. Our battle is a much greater battle against a much greater enemy. In 1856, a pastor named William Ramsey once wrote this. He said this, One of the most striking proofs of the existence of Satan, which our time affords us, is found in the fact that he, Satan, has so influenced the minds of multitudes in reference to his existence and doings as to make them believe that he does not exist. And that the host of demons or evil spirits over whom Satan presides as prince are only the fantasies of the brain, some hallucination of the mind. He's right. But what he's saying there is he's saying one of the greatest proofs that Satan exists is that there are so many that don't believe that he exists. Because he has completely fleeced them. Christian, don't be fleeced by the enemy. Your battle, this war that we are engaged in, is not a flesh and blood battle, but a spiritual battle. And if we don't remember that, if we're not constantly aware of who this enemy is, we run the risk of fighting the wrong battle with the wrong power against the wrong enemy. In World War II, there was a whole division known as the Ghost Army. And the Ghost Army, their job was to set up inflatable tanks and rubber planes... And fake sound effects and fake radio transmissions, all with the purpose of distracting the Germans so that they would be lined up to fight against the wrong enemy so that the Allied forces could hit them when they were not expecting it. See, the goal was to get the Germans to fight the wrong enemy. Y'all, Satan's goal is to get you to fight, fight the wrong enemy as well. Christian, Satan's goal is to get you to be angry and hateful and spiteful towards your governing, governing leaders. And even more so, against one another when you differ over silly matters in the church. Satan's thrown a party when we divide as believers. Don't let him win. Don't let him pull the wool over our eyes, guys. It's Satan is the one that we need to rage against. He's the one that we need to battle because he is our enemy. We must stay cognizant of our enemy. Otherwise, we will not stand. Great, fine, I get it. Be strengthened by the power of God in Christ. Remember who my real enemy is. But what should I do with that? How? How do I engage this battle? Well, the Apostle Paul says we get dressed for the battle. He says, put on the armor of God. Verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. You know what? I'm I'm so thankful that the Apostle Paul's response wasn't, well, just try harder. Right? I'm thankful that it wasn't, well, Christian, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get back in the fight. I'm thankful that he didn't say, hey, you strengthen yourself by your own might. I'm so thankful for that. But I'm also thankful that he doesn't say, hey, retreat into your holy huddles and just back away from the world completely. He doesn't say that either. He says, no, the battle's there. The battle's going to come. And we need to participate. We need to engage in in the the power of God. And the way we do that is we take up the armor of God. We avail ourselves to the power of what God has provided. Paul wrote this in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. Paul said, But he, God, said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power, my power, the Lord's power, is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul said, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. Why? Why? Well, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecution, calamities. Could I summarize that as spiritual warfare? Why? Because when I am weak, Paul says, then I am strong. Strong with whose strength is Paul talking about there? The strength of God. See, Christian, it's, it's not about us. This is not a passage glorifying our ability to stand against the enemy. We can't stand against the enemy. None of us in this room can. Satan is, is, when Satan goes before the Lord and accuses us and slandered us the way he did Job, here's the thing. You want a cold, hard, stark reality for you this morning? He's right. When Satan points the finger at me and says that he is a sinner, he's guilty, he is unholy before a holy and just god by myself y'all he's right but praise god he hasn't called us to stand in our own merit but in the merit and power of jesus and we begin to realize that through taking up these different pieces of the armor of god take up fasten on this armor he says in order that you may be able to withstand in the evil day well what's the evil day Well, we're living in it. And Paul was living in it. Ephesians 5.15 and 16, he says, Look carefully how you walk then, not as unwise but as as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. So Paul wants us to make sure that we are going to be able to withstand right now in the midst of the evil days as we are encountering and facing this, this opposition from the enemy. And then he says this, Having done all. And what that means is to to stand and to fasten on the armor of God having done everything that we can well what can we do we can do what Paul calls us to and that is to fasten on the armor of God to be adequately prepared to be ready for the battle you know I remember growing up my dad teaching me how to work with wood and and he would tell me over and over and over again in fact even just like six months ago or so he was out with me and we were building some wood and he said the same thing to me again I said dad it's been 37 years I I I think I get it now right But that's this, and and you'll be able to finish the the sentence. When you're working with wood and cutting with wood, you measure how many times? Twice. Twice. There you go, because your dad's all told you all that too, right? You measure twice, and then you cut how many times? Once. Because you don't want to measure once and cut once, because maybe your your tape measure slid a little bit on you, and you marked it in the wrong spot. And then you go and cut, and because you were hasty and you were unprepared, you, you now have a piece of wood that's useless because you can't, it doesn't fit. Well that's all about what? That's about being prepared before you enter into the task at hand. And that's what we're talking about here. Taking up the armor of God is making sure that we are prepared for the battle. It's making sure that we are ready for whatever comes. It's making sure that we are adequately accessing and availing ourselves of what God has provided for us so that we will stand in the face of the battle. That's point number two this morning is this: Be daily prepared for the battle. Be daily prepared for the battle. In verse 14, Paul begins, stand therefore. That verb there, command to stand, governs the rest of everything that we're going to talk about this morning. The rest of what we're going to talk about is how do we stand. But that's that command. Stand, be immovable, fix your feet, and don't budge from your spot. Stand therefore. How? Well, I begin by fastening on the armor of God. We're going to walk through these pieces of the armor of God, but... As we do, it's important for us to realize that we have a responsibility to play in this. This, Yes, the the, the power that we need is an external power. It's the power of God in Christ Jesus. It's the strength of his might. And yet we participate in in appropriating that power to ourselves as we dress for battle with the armor of God as we're about to walk through here. In other words, Christian, this is not a, a passive God, just protect me and let me kick things into cruise control. No, there's an active participation that we play in this. Just like Paul said in Philippians when he said, hey, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But then he balanced that saying what? Knowing that it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. See, it's, it's, it's the both and. But we take up the armor of God, and it begins with the belt of truth. It says, having fastened on the belt of truth. Literally, it's having girded your waist with truth this belt would have been worn under the armor and it wasn't there to hold up the britches as much as it was to uh, allow them to take the robes and the, the tunic of the soldier and tuck it into the belt to allow them to move more freely about the, the battlefield. And Paul says we need to, to take truth and gird it around our waist. And there's two different options there for truth. There's the objective truth of the gospel and of the word of God that we need to, to daily avail ourselves of this, to immerse ourselves, to flood ourselves with God's word and his truth, to live by his truth, right? There's that objective side of truth, but then there's the subjective side of it, which is how it looks in my life, as I live a life of honesty and integrity. And that that's what Paul's calling us to do, to gird our, ways with a, our lives with a, a, a truthful lifestyle. So which one is it? Is it that we need to flood ourselves with the truth of God's word or live lives of truth? Well, which do you think the answer is? Both, yeah. It's not either or. In fact, one, the, the, the word of God, should produce the other in our lives. And y'all, this is something that the world is going to seek to undermine at every turn that it possibly can, just like Satan in the garden with, with Eve. Did God really say? See, he's, he's questioning God's truth, and the world is going to question God's truth. It seems like every single day they're inventing a new way to question God's truth. Christian, every single morning... You need to prepare for battle by immersing yourself in the truth of God's word. You need to be saturated in the truth of God's word. The belt of truth. The next piece, the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate was a a metal plate or coat of mail that the soldier wore on his chest in order to guard against the thrust of a spear or a sword or an arrow. And it was there to protect the vital organs so that the, the heart wouldn't be pierced, so that the soldier could continue in the battle and could continue to live and would be protected and his life preserved. Well, Paul says the, the breastplate that you and I need to put on is the breastplate that is righteousness. Okay, we've got another question here. Is this the righteousness of God? That's ours, 2 Corinthians five twenty one in Christ Jesus, right? There God says that, that he made him, made Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin in order that you and I might become what? The, the righteousness of God. So that in Christ, we are God's righteousness. We possess, we have appropriated by faith, the righteousness of God to ourselves, right? That's, that's one view of this. The second view is, is this the, the righteousness that we need to be manifesting through living lives of holiness and godliness before the Lord? Is this the sanctification that should mark a Christian's life? where we are living out obedient and faithful lives in following Jesus as our Lord and Savior. So which is it? Is it that we are fastening on the righteousness of God or that we are fastening on the righteousness that should mark a Christian's life? Which do you think it is? It's both. Again, yes. In fact, you can't have one without the other. A righteousness apart from the righteousness of God, a righteousness that's just us working is no righteousness at all, but God calls it what? Filthy rags, Yes. But the righteousness of God that does not, in turn, produce a righteousness of life misses the point of God's righteousness to begin with, which is what James talks about. When he says, hey, a faith without works is what? Dead. And so every single day, Christian, we get up, we fasten on the breastplate, the the, the piece that protects our very lives, and fundamentally and foundationally, that is the righteousness that we have through the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. The righteousness that, that we have that allows God not just to declare us not guilty, but innocent. The righteousness that is ours that was, was merited, just not by us, by Jesus. So we stand up and we wake up daily and we say, that is mine. And that is a righteousness that protects me, that guards me, that preserves my life eternally. But then we also fasten on that breastplate of righteousness, which is a, a life of obedience to the Lord, which says, man, I I have appropriated the righteousness of God to myself through faith, and that righteousness is now going to manifest itself in the way that I live my life. And I need to make sure that I'm ready to live a righteous life today. And so it's the breastplate of righteousness. But then he goes on, and he talks about the the cleats of gospel readiness, if I can put it that way. Put on as as shoes for your feet The, the, the readiness of the gospel of peace, the readiness given by the gospel of peace. These are not shoes that you go to Nordstrom Rack and, and pull off the shelf and, and think, oh, these are cute, I'm going to wear these. No, these had a purpose, right? These are our military sandals, and these sandals had nails embedded in the bottom of them to let the soldier stand his ground. How many times has the Apostle Paul in our passage that we've read said, stand, 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 right? Well, Christian, what's enabling you to stand and not be moved against the attack of the enemy? Foundationally, fundamentally, it's the gospel. We take our stand on the rock, the solid rock of the gospel. That Jesus Christ has died for your sins so that you can be forgiven. That he's risen from the dead so that you will live forever with him. That he's given you his spirit so that you can follow him as your Lord and your king. Christian, that is daily what we wake up and we remind ourselves on. And we wake up and we remind ourselves every single moment. Hey, my standing with the Lord is not based on my performance, but Jesus' performance for me. That Jesus has won my salvation, that Jesus has won my forgiveness, that Jesus has won my righteousness that I have, and it's the foundation upon which we stand. It's the the cleats of gospel readiness, but there's another element to that as well, right? Paul says in Romans chapter 10, how beautiful are the feet of the one who brings good news, the feet that are shod with the cleats of gospel readiness, because if you've experienced the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you're not going to be able to help but to take it to other people. To go with the gospel, to advance with the gospel, and to say, hey, I need to talk to you because, man, I want to see you get right with the Lord, and so you need to repent from your sins and believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Can I tell you what that looks like and what that means? And so again, is this about our foundation being the gospel, or is this about our advancement with the gospel? Well, what's the answer? It's both. Just to give you guys a heads up, every answer is going to be both from here on out, okay? (laughs) Just so we're on the same page, okay? So the cleats of gospel readiness. But the other thing, we're taking up the helmet of salvation. Okay, well, again, is this our future deliverance that we know that we will be saved? The, the Bible talks about the fact that we are being saved and we will be saved and we will be free from sin and we will be with Jesus. Is it that salvation that we're to, to take up or is it focused on Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 which says you have been saved? That there is a very present finished final reality to your salvation, that it's as good as done, that there's nothing left to be done, that you are presently where you sit saved, right? So which is it? Is it our future deliverance or is it our present deliverance? What's the answer? It's both, right? And what this is about, this is about you being able to put on the helmet of salvation and basically say to the world, bring whatever you're going to bring against me, you can't touch me. Yeah, you you can take my life, But what did Jesus say? Don't fear the person that can just take your life. Fear the one that can kill both the body and soul in hell. Well, if that part's taken care of through the gospel, that you no longer have to fear the one who can kill the body and soul in hell, because you are right with that one, well, then guess what? You don't have to fear the person that can take your life either. The helmet of salvation gives you the perspective of Paul when he said, for me to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain, Gain, right? In fact, he goes on to say this. He goes on to say I desire to depart and be with Jesus, for that is what? Far better. It's far better. Paul must have been so aggravating to his enemies, right? You better stop or we're going to kill you. Okay. I'm ready. You're going to send me to be with Jesus? Let's do it. In fact, I left Paul in Philippians. He's like, Oh, but I know I'm going to have to stay on because you guys need me around a little bit longer. <laughs> Man, but that confidence in where you're going, that's the helmet of salvation that we put on every single day. And then we take up the sword of the spirit. Uh, this is the one, right? If you grew up going to a want or you grew up in the church in Sunday school class, we used to do what? Sword drills. Where your Sunday school leader or your wanna leader would be up there and they'd say, All right, first one to John 3.16, get a Bible buck," right? And you're flipping in the Bible real fast trying to get there before everybody else. Some of you had cheater tabs where you could just flip it open real fast and you were good to go. But why do we do that? Because we want to train our children to be able to handle the sword of the Spirit. Because the sword of the Spirit is the enemy, is the weapon rather, that we use against the lies of the enemy. The enemy comes with his temptations and we respond with the word of God. Just like Jesus did in the wilderness when he was being tempted by Satan. And every single time, all three times that we've recorded there, What did Jesus do? Every single time he was tempted, he responded with what? The word of God. Christian, you need to daily make sure that you have the word of God. And not just daily, but there needs to be a pattern of your life that is characterized by immersing yourself in the truth of God's word, memorizing his word. There's an app out there, the Bible memory app. Download it on your phone today or fighter verses, download that today. Whatever you need, start internalizing God's word because it's that that's gonna enable you to stand effectively against the attacks of the enemy. But it's not just the defensive element of the sword that thrusts aside these jabs from Satan. There's an offensive part of the sword, right? And that's where we get into the, the word word here because the sword is the word of God. Well, it's the word rhema there which has a greater emphasis on the spoken word than it does on the written word. In fact, it's the same word that Paul uses in Romans 10. You remember the passage in Romans 10, alluded to it earlier when he says this. He says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But then Paul says, but how are they gonna call on the name of the one of whom they've never heard? And how are they gonna hear unless someone preaches? And then he says this statement. He says that hearing comes from the word of Christ there's the word rhema again and so Christian one of the ways that we take up the sword of the spirit is we go with the proclamation of the gospel and that's the offensive attack we put the enemy on his heels when we go forward with the the message that declares the final victory of Jesus Christ over these demonic forces over Satan and over the final enemy to be abolished which Paul says is what? death, right? So we take up the sword of the spirit and we go on the offensive when we go with the gospel and proclaim the gospel. Well, I know those of you with OCD are sitting out there going, he skipped one. And it really bothers me because he skipped one. He just missed it completely. And you haven't heard a word I said for the last five minutes (laughs) because you're hung up on the one. Well, here you go, okay? You can check your box and go home satisfied. It's the shield of faith. And I intentionally left that one towards the end. And here's why. This is not some dinky Captain America round shield that we're talking about, okay? No, the, the shield of the Roman soldier was about the size and thickness of a door. It would have been covered with animal skins, bound by iron with a giant iron boss on the front of it to be able to defend, defend and deflect the, the blows of the enemy and the arrows that would have come in. Paul says the shield of faith is what we are to take up in all circumstances, here's why I saved it to the end. The shield was big enough to cover the entire soldier and also to cover all of the the other elements of the soldier's armor. I don't want to press anything too far, but, but Christian, I do think there's something to the fact that faith is what undergirds every single other element of the armor of God that we've talked about this far. If you think about the belt of truth, well, we have to have faith that God's word is truth. You think about the righteousness, the breastplate of righteousness. We have to have faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Faith is the thing that appropriates the righteousness to us, right? You think about your standing in the gospel, the the gospel cleats of of gospel readiness there, right? Well, faith is what is the, the, the only response that activates the power of the gospel in our lives. Or you think about going with the gospel. Well, faith is there to believe that God's arm is not too short to save or his ear too dull to hear and that he can save the lost in your life. Think about the sword of the spirit. Faith is what's so crucial to believe in the promises and the truths of God's word over the lies and the deception of the enemy. Think about the helmet of salvation. Faith is what enables us to say, come what may, I'm okay because I know where I'm going and I know who's got me. And so that's why I saved it to the end, that we take up the shield of faith because faith undergirds each and every one of those other pieces of our armor he says that the shield allows us to extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one the roman soldiers used to to saturate their shields in water and then they would go into battle and those those soaked animal skins on the shield when the flaming arrows would hit them they would extinguish the fire and defeat the the plan and the scheme of the enemy some of those flaming darts we've talked about already the the persecution that comes from the enemy the temptation the evil thoughts from the enemy The condemnation that the enemy is willing to heap on you all the while you have a Romans 8.1 waiting to to fire back at the enemy that says, therefore now what? There's no condemnation for me because I'm in Christ Jesus. False teachings, sickness, illness, temptations, right? The enemy has all of these at his disposal and he's ready to bring them to bear on you. But what do we say? Well, we say with the song that we so often sing, when Satan tempts me to to despair, what am I going to do? Upward I look in faith and see Christ. I see him there who made an end of all my sin. Faith is so important. So Christian, when you're tempted to fear or become anxious, remember, take up the shield of faith and remember that God is the sovereign Lord of everything on this planet. Christian, when you're tempted to, uh, to, to become angry over what seems like an injustice that's going unpunished, take up the shield of faith and remember that God is a God of holiness and justice and rep- retribution and wrath and vengeance will be his. Christian, when you're tempted to be discouraged over a lost loved one who continues to reject the gospel, take up the shield of faith and believe that God is still able to save, still able to deliver, and as long as there is today, go back again with the gospel. When you're tempted by the shiny veneer of this world, Christian, remember what John says, that this world and everything in it is passing away, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. The armor of God, it's not, it's not a one and done thing. It's not like you, you put it on once in your life or even once a day. This is something that we need to be reminding ourselves of, of minute by minute, moment by moment anchoring ourselves to the the, the gospel of God's grace, reminding ourselves of our future deliverance, reminding ourselves that I'm righteous in Christ, reminding that I've got the sword of the Spirit at the ready, that I've got the shield of faith. This is something that we have to to be doing over and over and over again. And in doing this and in, in, in practicing these things over and over and putting them on every single opportunity that we have, we will be sure that we are prepared for the battle. that's not all that is involved in standing like he talked about in verse 14. It's fastening on the armor of God but then there's verse 18 and so often verse 18 we leave off. But verse 18 is as important to the armor of God as any of the other pieces there because verse 18 is the way that we appropriate God's armor to ourselves, the way that we fasten it on to ourselves. In verse 18 Paul says this, that we must be praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Prayer is crucial for us to survive the battle. In fact, John Piper goes so far as to say this. He says, until we believe that life is war, we will not know what prayer is for. Until we believe that life is war, we will not know what prayer is for. Until we realize how much we need God's power, then we really don't understand what the purpose of prayer is to begin with. So Paul says, we need to be praying at all times. Really? All the time, Paul? Yeah, but this should come as no surprise, right? Paul's said this before. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says, pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing. Don't stop praying. Romans 12.12, Paul says, be constant in prayer. Luke 18.1, if I can one-up Paul and go to Jesus, right? Jesus said, hey, you need to to be praying always and not lose heart. We need to pray at all times because of the nature of the battle that we are fighting and the nature and the power of the enemy that we are up against. We need the power of God. And so we pray at all times in the Spirit or by the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who prompts us to pray, enables us to pray. And even in Romans 8, Paul says, groans with groanings too deep for word when we don't know how to pray. So we pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. In other words, with every kind of prayer and supplication. Prayer is the general word for prayer, the general word for addressing God. This can be thanksgiving. This can be praise. This can be rehearsing the promises of God in prayer. But then there's that word supplication. And that's the desperation and the urgency that so often accompanies spiritual warfare. It's the pleading with the Lord to intervene, the pleading with the Lord to save us, the pleading with the Lord as Jesus himself taught us to pray. Lord, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. Again, why? Well, because we're up against, y'all, the rulers and the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil at work in the heavenly places. We must pray. Remember in verse 10, Paul began by be strengthened in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Y'all, the way that we do that begins with prayer. Prayer is the first step in the whole process of arming ourselves, of preparing ourselves, of putting on the armor of God. Prayer must accompany us, accompany us into battle, or we will not stand. Our final point this morning is this be continually strengthened through persistent prayer be continually strengthened through persistent prayer. You've probably heard the saying, right? There are no atheists where? In a foxhole. There's no atheist in a foxhole. Why not? Because when the bullets are whizzing overhead and the mortar shells are falling all around, all of a sudden you're aware of your mortality. You're aware of your finitude and you're aware that you need a power greater than yourself to deliver you from the predicament that you're in. Well, Christian, we must be in the foxhole every single day and aware of our dependence on the Lord because we can't stand in anything that we have in and of ourselves. And we have to be praying every single moment, moment by moment, minute by minute, every single day, praying at all times, as Paul says, because of what's at stake. Look, Christian, if you are in Christ, you're not going to lose your salvation, Jesus himself said, Look, of all that the Father has given me, I will not lose a single one of them. But, Christian, you can forfeit reward. You can have your spiritual growth stunted, your sanctification slowed, your mission derailed. See, all all of these things are are, are dangers that exist for us on a daily basis. If we are not saturating ourselves with with prayer, if we are not mindful, then we need the power of God moment by moment, minute by minute, every single day. And so we must be persistent in prayer. That word persistent, it can also mean tenacious in prayer. Must be unflagging in prayer, dogged in our pursuit of of God and in pleading with him to intervene for us. Must be incessant in prayer, unrelenting in prayer unremitting, tireless in prayer. We must pray without ceasing. We must be constant in prayer. We must always pray and not lose hearts. Y'all, I need that in my life. I was reading this morning about the prayer life of Charles Spurgeon, and they said this, he rarely prayed for more than five minutes at a time, but he rarely went five minutes without praying. I love that, right? I want that. I need, I, I don't just want that. Y'all, I, I need that. I need that if I'm to be effective in my fight against the Lord. Or not against the Lord. <laughs> fight against the enemy. Yeah. I need prayer desperately, more consistent, more constant in it certainly after a passage like this and talking about this prayer, it should follow with, as no surprise that, that I hope we're all beginning our day with prayer, yes? It should be the first thing that we do. As soon as your eyes open, pray. Maybe leave them open, otherwise you might be back into to dreamland if you, you close them again. But it, before you grab your phone, before you check social media, before you check the stocks, before you check the news, before you check... The, whatever it may be that, that is your default in the morning, before your cup of coffee, before you brush your teeth, God's not offended by your morning breath, right? Pray. Why? Because you need it. I need it. We need to breathe, praying for God's will to be done with the next breath that we have. But in context, Paul's talking about the armor of God and how it relates to prayer. Prayer. And he says that we should take up the armor of God, and then he says, praying. Take it up, praying. Fasten it on, praying, which means that we take up and fasten on these different elements of the armor of God through prayer. It's through prayer that I confess the truth of God's word as I fasten on the belt of his truth, that I agree that his word is true and that nothing else that that disagrees with his word is true. It's through prayer that I rejoice in and exult in God's righteousness that now I now have through faith in Jesus Christ. It's through prayer that I rehearse the good news of justification through faith, the, the good news of that gospel that allows me to stand firm. It's through prayer that I praise the Lord for the security that I now have in Christ as I take up the helmet of salvation. It's through prayer that I ask the Lord to help me wield the sword of the Spirit effectively against the lies and temptations of the enemy. It's through prayer that I plead with the Lord to soften the hearts and open the eyes of the lost in my life as I go to share the gospel with them. And it's through prayer that I ask the Lord to daily increase my faith in his goodness and his promises and who he has revealed himself to be in the scriptures as I take up the shield of faith. Again, y'all, this is not a -a once-a-day endeavor. I fear that too often we leave prayer next to our Bibles after we finish with our DBR in the morning, and we think, "Well, I I prayed after I did my daily Bible reading, or before I did my daily Bible reading, so I'm set for the rest of the day. I'm good on prayer. Maybe I'll pick it up before I eat. Maybe I'll pick it up again at the end of the day." But, but the box has been checked. No, the box is never checked when it comes to prayer. We always need to be praying, praying at all times. Because of what's at stake. Christian, a prayerless day is a perilous day. A prayerless moment is a perilous moment. A prayerless minute. A perilous minute. So maybe you're sitting out there going, okay, I get it. I need to pray more. Where do I begin? What does that look like? How do I even start? Let me just suggest a few things for you. Just three things real quick here. Number one, set a time. Set a time that you can be consistent every single day to make sure that you are praying at this time. Maybe that means setting your alarm clock 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, five minutes earlier, whatever it may be. Carve out that time because you need it, right? Set a time. Second, set a place. Find a place that you can be consistent in, that you know that this is where you'll be. Every single morning, every single time, whatever this time is, you can be found right here. This is where I'm going to be. This is the spot that I get away, that I set myself up, that I engage with my God because I need that time. And so find a place that's undistracted to to be in prayer. And then you might be saying, well, but Pastor Vijay, I thought this was not something that we just do one time, but throughout the whole day. Exactly, so the next thing is pull out that phone that you've got that can lead us into so many distractions and let's redeem it a little bit. Let's open up our reminders app and why don't you throw some reminders in your phone to go off throughout the day that say pray without ceasing. Be constant in prayer. Pray at all times. So that when that reminder goes off on your phone, you think to yourself, man, I need to find within the next five minutes, I need to get myself into a place and away from whatever I'm doing and spend some time praying to the Lord because I need it. I need it. Prayer gains access to that power of God that we began this morning with. Be strengthened in the Lord. Where does that begin? That begins on my knees. That begins praying and pleading that the Lord would provide that strength for me. Hebrews four fourteen through 16, the writer of Hebrews says, Since then we have so great a high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Christian, praise God that you have the ability to pray, and he will hear you, and he will answer you. And the screw tape letters, screw tape, speaking to his nephew, said this. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. In other words, he's saying, look, the, the, the safest road to hell is the one for the person who has no idea that that's where they are. Christian, we of all people should know that we are in the midst of a battle and a conflict. And all around us are, are people who are on this road without the signpost, without the path, without, without realizing they're on the gradual path towards destruction. And we are fighting an enemy who wants to keep them blind to that and we need to go after them and we need to do battle and we need to go to war to see them won to Christ. But you're up against an enemy that wants to distract you with that ghost army. Your enemy wants you focused on flesh and blood, not the rulers and authorities, not the cosmic powers. He wants to distract you, derail you, and if possible, destroy you. And so we must ensure that we are well prepared for the battle. We must know our enemy, dress for battle, and incessantly ask the Lord for strength. Let's do that right now. Father, we are grateful that you have provided the strength for us to be able to stand. Grateful, Lord, for our relationship with Jesus. Grateful that we stand not on our own merit. Grateful that you haven't called us to just survive this by ourselves. But you provided a, a righteousness that's not our own. You have provided a, a gospel upon which we can stand confidently, Lord. You have provided the truth of your word to guide us and, and help us and, and that can be wielded as the sword of the Spirit against the attacks of the enemy. God, I pray that we would be a church that's not distracted by a ghost army. I pray that we would be a church that's doing damage against the enemy and against its forces. God, I, I pray that we would be a church that loves your word and that loves your truth and that loves the gospel. God, I pray that we would be a church so convinced of our eternal security in Jesus and, and salvation that's coming that we are ready to go up against whatever the foe may bring us this week. Father, I know that in the next seven days before we are all back together again, we will all encounter and face opposition. We will face an enemy who's active, an enemy who hates us, and his demons are gonna come after us. And yet, Lord, you have provided for us through Ephesians chapter six, this blueprint for how we might be able to stand against his attacks. In your power, not in ours. As we pray moment by moment every single day that you would strengthen us. Lord, that you would be our righteousness. That you would be the the source of our truth. That you would remind us of our security in you, that you would make us ready to take the gospel to the lost, that you would help us to wield the sword against the temptations of the enemy, and that you would help us to take up the shield and believe with a greater faith each and every day in your goodness and in your promises as they're revealed in your word. Lord, we thank you for all of that. God, I pray that this would be a week of victory for our people against the enemy. Lord, we want to be more like Jesus when we come back together as a result of this week than we are this morning. And we know that you are able to do that as you work your will in and through our lives. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.